BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Donald Trump's victory, which was made official this week by the Electoral College, was powered by promises of an inward turn toward domestic economic revival. More jobs, lower taxes, higher tariffs, fewer military entanglements, and a secure border. But the world has intruded anyway, with bursts of terrorism in Berlin, the assassination in Turkey, surrender in Syria, and a provocation from Russia that's forced Trump to react again and again. It was as real as it's gotten for the president-elect, and that's where we're going to start. We'll end with the not-so-real. Let's get this over with. Uh, are there any more cabinet picks left? Okay, we're almost full, sir. Rick Perry has agreed to be Secretary of Is Energy. Is that a great choice? I saw him on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> this guy has so much energy. Yeah. <laughs> He's just unprecedented. So now all I have to do is pick who will be president. Uh, That's you, sir. Can I just do it three days a week like Howard Stern does? My colleague Sarah Neer got the first interview with Alec Baldwin about his infamous portrayal of Trump on Saturday Night Live, and we've got the exclusive audio of that conversation. First, we talked to newly minted White House reporter Maggie Haberman and her colleague in Washington, Mark Landler. Maggie and Mark, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Michael. I want to start with some breaking news that just happened a few moments ago. Actually, two pieces of breaking news. And the first involves Israel. The United Nations was set to vote on a resolution sponsored by Egypt that was critical of Israel's construction of settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And quite remarkably, Donald Trump seemed to alter the course of events inside the UN with a social media post saying that the United States must veto this, not just abstain from a vote, but veto this. And I wonder what we learned about Trump's interest and his influence over global affairs from this incident. Well, I could jump in for a second. I mean, I think we learned a couple of things. One is one we've already seen over the past few days, which is he doesn't subscribe to the old idea that the country has one president at a time. He's, you know, intervening very forcefully in foreign policy, which is completely unorthodox, uh, to use a phrase that's apt in this discussion, for anyone else who's been president-elect. Um, he's also clearly going to side in a very open, hawkish, and unapologetic manner with the Likud government in Israel um, by, you know, preemptively saying the U.S. should veto any resolutions that put pressure on Israel. Um, what's interesting about this one uh, is that there was a lot of speculation that the Obama administration was not going to veto this resolution, was going to let it pass, which would have been the first time during the Obama years that they have allowed a tough-on-Israel resolution to pass the United Nations. Um, and so clearly President-elect Trump was trying to preempt that. Um, I'd make one other point. I think the actual reason the vote was delayed had less to do with the Trump statement than with the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu called the president of uh, Egypt, Sisi, and put a lot of pressure on the Egyptians 
um, to uh, to delay the vote on this. So there was there was some heavy lobbying going on in the Middle East itself. Um, but clearly, it's a moment that dramatizes, you know, Trump's willingness to wade into these issues even before he takes the oath of office. I think Mark is exactly right, and I think to his point, uh, especially in political coverage in the U.S. when it comes to foreign policy, we tend to look at just the surface level of what we're seeing uh, happening in front of us, statements issued by either a candidate or a president-elect, and not see what is actually happening elsewhere in the world in terms of uh, negotiations, to his point about Egypt. For Trump's supporters, it is a a rallying cry that he plans to be tough. Uh, it is also him very clearly, as Mark said, aligning with Netanyahu. In terms of what this looks like, though, when it is not, you know, sort of Trump triangulating against Obama and Trump actually having to be the only president, I don't know what we're going to see uh, in terms of foreign policy. It's a little easier for him to do this right now. Maggie, when Mark talked about one president at a time, do the Trump people think about that concept? In other words, are they aware that this is a guiding principle of that time period between presidents and they're just ignoring it? Or are, is the concept just one that they haven't even absorbed? No, no, they're they're aware of it. They don't really care. Uh, like many other conventions that they have shrugged off or said, look, we beat, you know, what is in their mind conventional wisdom. I'd argue this is something different than conventional wisdom. Uh, but they look at it as, you know, we've defied the odds before. We've defied expectations. We've defied every other norm. Why would we stick with this one? I think also Trump feels a little emboldened in the wake of this question about Russia and the hacking during uh, the election, where you saw President Obama, who has been very careful about what he has said about Donald Trump publicly, and he was in that press conference as well, but he also all but said uh, Russia did this, and Trump is on a very different side of that right now. So I think he feels a little safer, and certainly his aides do, trying to pull away a bit and be more blunt. Mark, I want to ask you about that press conference, the end-of-year press conference that President Obama held. Because during that press conference, I noticed something. It seemed kind of subtle. I wonder what you think. The president said of Donald Trump's call to Taiwan, you know, that it's important that the country speak with one voice, which I saw as kind of a gentle chiding of Trump by Obama. Did the White House want to communicate something publicly that it hasn't been able to communicate privately? Well, I think that the White House is walking this very fine line with the president-elect, which is that President Obama wants to keep a cordial relationship with Trump uh, to keep a channel open because I think he genuinely thinks that he can influence the incoming president if he has a line open to him. He can talk to him about issues that matter to him. He can offer him counsel. So I think that publicly, President Obama has tried very hard not to take on the president-elect, not to allow anything to become remotely personal. At the same time, there are certain areas where I think the White House feels that the president-elect needs to have some lines drawn. And I think they, like everybody else, recognize that one of the most effective ways to get a message across to Donald Trump is to do it on television. So I think President Obama was saying, look, I appreciate you wanting to bring, you, Donald Trump, wanting to bring fresh eyes to foreign policy problems, you know, the U.S. relationship with China and Taiwan. On the other hand, you need to understand that, A, I'm still the president, and B, if you are going to make these fairly radical statements about how we view the one China policy, for example, uh, or holding a phone conversation with the president of Taiwan, you need to understand that these actions have far-reaching consequences, consequences that you might not even fully 
uh, realize yourself. So I think that's what President Obama was trying to do. On the one hand, be very cordial, be respectful. On the other hand, you know, gently get the point across, as you said, that there are lines here that the president-elect needs to be careful not to cross. I want to move on to Russia and nuclear weapons, because in another breaking news moment that just happened within the last hour or so, Donald Trump sent out a tweet about nuclear weapons and America's need, he said, to strengthen and expand our nuclear stockpile, which would violate various nuclear arms control treaties that we've signed throughout the past few decades. Why do we think he did that? I know that reading Trump's Twitter mind is a difficult task, but why do we think he made that statement? It happened to fall at the same time that uh, Vladimir Putin also talked about increasing nuclear capability in his country, uh, if I heard correctly about exactly what uh, Putin said. There is a, a large question about what the relationship is between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin that has been pretty dominant over the last several months. Trump has privately told associates that he is speaking with Putin pretty frequently. A source who um, spoke with him in the last few days said that he has talked about this. So I don't really know whether there's a cause and effect here, but the timing is quite interesting. What do you think, Mark? The Putin speech is, is interesting because it, like Trump's tweet, can be read a couple of different ways. He uses the phrase, uh, you know, strengthen our nuclear um, capability, but but that may refer to modernizing the force in Russia so that, for example, the Russians could um, launch missiles that could get through missile defense systems in Eastern Europe, for example, as opposed to just increasing the size of the stockpile. And, you know, and that goes to the confusion that Trump has raised with this tweet. You know, while the U.S. under Obama has signed at least one major arms control treaty with Russia, we have embarked on this very expensive modernization of our nuclear arsenal. And so to go to the question of what is Trump actually saying, if he's saying we need to modernize uh, and, and make sure we have the latest generation equipment, well, we're already doing that. If he means we actually need to start building new nuclear warheads, that's an entirely new ballgame. It would, as you said earlier, violate the terms of arms control deals. And, you know, it just goes to the fact that 140 characters can stir up a world of confusion. And I think this is today's version of that. Yesterday's version was whether uh, Donald Trump really meant to say that uh, he planned to go ahead with his plan to impose a total ban on Muslim immigration in response to the latest terrorist attacks in Europe. Uh, He seemed, by some accounts, to be leaning in that direction. But again, his words were so cryptic that you could interpret them a number of different ways. And in that case, he had to send out a, um, a campaign official later in the day to clarify that, no, he was really talking about his softer version of a ban on Muslim immigration, not the really sweeping ban that he first announced during the campaign. So I think we're in another one of those days when we'll spend several hours (laughs) scratching our heads and then hopefully by seven or eight o'clock land on what we think the fairest interpretation is of what Trump said. Let's talk about what he actually said there because it's kind of fascinating. He was asked about the Berlin terror attack and what he said was, quote, all along I've been proven to be right, 100% correct. What I want to talk about is the personalization of world events. Because when he used to say, I was right, it sounded like the braggadocio of a candidate. Now that he's president-elect, it's pretty remarkable that he still sees things as being about him. And we may see that 
as a motivating force in his decision to tweet about nuclear weapons because Putin did. And it's about him and Putin. So were we naive to perhaps think that there was going to be a transformation from candidate to president-elect who saw the a bigger picture and was able to sort of take himself out of these events? He's a 70-year-old man. He's not going to change. And he views everything fundamentally through the lens of himself. It is all how it impacts him. And being vindicated and not being laughed at, as you know, is a big piece of his psyche. And so that's some of where the I was right comes from. I, I defer entirely to Maggie on psychoanalysis of Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but I will, make, I, I will make one point as someone who's actually covered in an outgoing administration where this personalization is going to really wreak havoc, I think, is in how, you know, he relates with his key cabinet secretaries who will be also traveling around the world speaking on behalf of the United States. So the scenario you can envision is Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, making a statement in the Middle East about American-Israel policy or um, counter-ISIL policy or whatever it might be, uh, and then finding himself flatly contradicted by his boss in a tweet. This is the kind of thing that in a normal administration is enough to cripple a cabinet secretary. If you recall, Colin Powell made some statement early on as Secretary of State about North Korea that he had to walk back. It turned out he got way out in front of the White House, and it was actually something that dogged him for the rest of his term at the State Department. I see this happening potentially routinely to Donald Trump's cabinet secretaries, and I can only guess at the kind of mess that's going to create uh, you know, within the cabinet and, and, and the working of the administration. Mark, you provided a perfect segue to domestic affairs and to the transition and all of these very wealthy cabinet appointees that Donald Trump is making. They don't seem to want to fill out the forms and make the disclosures that apparently the rules demand and that tradition demands. And I wonder if Democrats are going to make a really big fuss about this when it comes time to confirm all of these appointments in the next couple of weeks, or if they're just going to say, eh, and Republicans are going to railroad it anyway, and, and it's not going to be a big deal. What do we think? I think the Democrats, uh, to, to them, some cabinet appointees are more important than others, uh, and this is a handy cudgel with which to hit you know, an unattractive appointee. I don't know whether they will make it simply their sine qua non for the entire process because they will be railroaded by the Republicans. So I think I would expect to see them really go after a couple of cases where they have other problems with the, with the appointees and they can bring up this lack of disclosure as another weapon. I want to turn to Obamacare because it turns out it's still pretty popular and 400,000 Americans just signed up for it. And President-elect Trump remains committed to repealing it, he says, as do Republicans who now control Congress. But I, I wonder, Maggie, if when you think about the states he won and where these new signups have been greatest, and they've been in Trump states that he carried on November 8th, that they must realize this could be a hugely politically dangerous undertaking to take away people's health care as one of the first steps of your new administration. It's going to be an interesting test of 
Trump's will on this, because Trump also, while he was talking about repeal and replace, remember, he had that one interview out of the gate uh, with 60 minutes after his election where he talked about two provisions he was going to keep and one we had known before and one one was was newer. But he's also something of a I like to think of him as almost like an like an Ed Koch Republican. Right. I mean, Ed Koch, the former mayor of New York City, who was pretty big on on social programs and on government spending on certain projects, Trump campaigned on preserving Social Security and Medicare. So I don't know what the through line is from that to, and I'm going to uproot Obamacare and hope for the best in terms of what comes in replacing it. It's going to be an interesting battle between him and some members of Congress. Mark, does the Obama White House believe that this this is a foregone conclusion that a Trump White House and Republican Congress will repeal this, or... Do they think there's a chance this might stay? I think this is an area where they think that the president, the sitting president, might have an influence on the incoming president. I think that, look, the Republicans have been so hell-bent on um, repeal and replace that I think the White House is probably girding itself for some form of that, as opposed to just the law surviving intact. But I think what they may be feeling a slightly larger degree of optimism about is that if the Republicans don't get a really solid replace, um, you know, in shape, which most people doubt they will be able to, that they wouldn't just repeal it and leave it unreplaced with anything. So I think that there is a larger degree of optimism on the part of the White House. And I also think that in this category of things that President Obama hopes to have an ongoing conversation with Donald Trump about, Obamacare has got to be at the top of that list. This was the week that Donald Trump officially became the president-elect. The Electoral College members cast their votes. There was a lot of rancor around it, including from Bill Clinton, who came out and expressed his frustration with the fact that his wife wasn't the winner despite winning the popular vote. I want your prediction, and we can keep this really brief, on whether when we do this podcast in 10 years or 20 years... I'm thinking 40, but yeah. um, Is there still going to be an electoral college that plays this role, decisive role, in these presidential elections. Yes. Thanks, Maggie. I find it hard to imagine that it survives this particular incident. On the other hand, I would have told you 16 years ago that I found it difficult to imagine how it could survive another Democrat winning the popular vote and losing the electoral college in an even more disputed election than this one. So I guess I'd say, if, I, if you were to press me on it, it might actually survive. And the reason it might survive is that it doesn't systemically favor, seem to favor one candidate or the other. You can conceive of a configuration where a Republican could find themselves in, in a similar disadvantaged position. And for that reason, I'm not certain that we're going to see the kind of concerted political effort we'd need to abolish it. No, I agree with Mark. I want to end with the Trump kids who are learning in an extraordinarily public fashion how much their lives are going to change, how much their old habits are not going to quite fly anymore now that their dad is president-elect. Maggie, Eric Trump told you and told our colleague Eric Lipton that he won't fundraise anymore for his charity given that people are essentially bidding up the price of anything they offer in order to get access to the kids to then get access, intellectually at least, to the father, President-elect Trump. Um, Why did it take him so long to realize that this was a problem? 
Just to uh, clarify, what he said was that he's not going to directly solicit money for the charity anymore. They will still have, I think, some small dollars that are going to go through the hotels and things like that, uh, where people can like check a box when they pay. But look, I was been very struck by the Trump family, including the candidate, but certainly the kids, this entire campaign, the degree to which they just don't exist in the world that you and I do. And just, a lot of this has been trial by fire. There has been a degree to which... Uh, some of them, particularly Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, keep sort of touching the hot stove and seeing whether it will burn. Um, and, and, <laughs> and it od- burns. And oddly it does. Um, in the case of Eric Trump, I mean, I think he genuinely, he really does care about the foundation. He started it when he was 21. It has raised several millions of dollars. And it's a, it's a real foundation that has raised several millions of dollars for St. Jude's Children's Hospital, which cures cancer and uh, focuses on brain cancer in particular. He's very, very concerned with it. But I think that their presentation has always been throughout the campaign some degree of how can you question my motive or how can you question what we're doing. Right. So the instances you uh, referenced, one was a coffee with Ivanka Trump that was being auctioned off. There are people told Eric Lipton on the record, yes, I'm hoping to speak to her about immigration policy or that's why I'm spending money on this. Um, but it's not an unusual phenomenon to for the family of a president since the family – was not the ones that decided to run to take a little while to sort of adjust to the right. the heat lamp and the Klieg lights. That said, the Trump children did put themselves front and center in this campaign. They're also not children. They're all adults. At a certain point, they're going to have to accept it. I, I think that they are trying, but I think that there's a, a ways to go. And Mark, when you think about answering that question, think, I want you to contemplate this. Wouldn't the same situation in some respects have applied to Chelsea Clinton and her husband, Mark, who is a hedge fund manager. Oh, I think absolutely. I think that adult children of any incoming first family almost always have a difficult transition. I mean, you don't have to go even as far back as Billy Carter, the wayward brother of President Jimmy Carter, uh, who was a frequent source of embarrassment during uh, that president's term. But the, the sort of notion of brothers or children or people like that. There, there's, a, there's a long history of this. Uh, and in fact, the parallel between the Trump children and Chelsea is a particularly apt one, given the fact that they are, they move in the same circles of uh, foundation work and philanthropy and extreme wealth. So I do think that would have applied. I was really struck by the quote that Eric Trump gave to Maggie and Eric Lipton. Uh, I understand the quagmire. Um, I almost feel like that's the kind of quote that he may look back on in three or four years and think it applies to a whole lot more than his personal charity. Um, it really gets at the, the, the very heavily limited lifestyle that he and his brother and sister are going to have to accept. Um, and by limited lifestyle, I mean unrelenting media scrutiny and questioning of his motives and uh, things he's doing. Um, And I think that that will uh, hit him and his siblings in unexpected ways. I mean, I was struck by the fact that the three of them thought nothing of sitting in on a meeting with their father and Silicon Valley uh, um, executives uh, in Trump Tower last week probably something they didn't really think that much about at the time. But when the pictures were posted on social media of the, of the three Trumps sitting at the table, a lot of people looked at that askance. And I mean, that's just a small illustration of the kinds of sensitivities 
that that Eric Trump and his siblings are going to encounter time and again uh, in this new life. I mean, it isn't just a holy new life for their father. It's a holy new life for them as well. And this week is just one small step in that painful adjustment. Maggie, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So enough of the real. Let's get this over with. Uh, are there any more cabinet picks left? Okay, we're almost full. So Rick Perry has agreed to be Secretary of is Energy. Is that a great choice? I saw him on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> this guy has so much energy. Yeah. <laughs> It's just unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So now all I have to do is pick who will be president. Um, that's you, sir. Can I just do it three days a week like Howard Stern does? Alec Baldwin has created a caricature for the ages with his depiction of Donald Trump on SNL, a caricature that has clearly gotten under the skin of the president-elect. Trump deals with it as he so often deals with any criticism by taking to Twitter. Just tried watching Saturday Night Live, he wrote, at 12.13 a.m. on a recent Sunday morning, about three-quarters of the way through the show. Unwatchable. Baldwin impersonation just can't get any worse. Sad. Baldwin, who is an outspoken liberal, has retaliated with tweets of his own, but he hadn't yet spoken about his experience playing Donald Trump until he spoke with my colleague Sarah Neer on the set of the show last Saturday night. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Michael. I love your show. I want to start, Sarah, with a piece of tape from your remarkable interview with Alec Baldwin. Just after you asked him about getting into character and his process, kind of how he transports himself into Donald Trump and how he finds the right voice and all the right gestures, he talked about the most important first step, which is putting on that magical, swoopy-haired wig. We just plop that on, tack it on, and uh, it really is it. Like once, one time, I think the first one we did, Lauren complained that it was too orange, or maybe very orange. 
which I liked. <laughs> and uh, Lauren said, oh, it's too much. And so we, we toned that down, although I do wear a lot of makeup in the eye of a raccoon. But it does help because, I mean, I was not somebody that imitated Trump. And I really mean this literally, that as I walked from this room, I sat in here and I watched tapes of him for a couple of days and we talked about it. And as I left here, the very first night we did the show at the dress and then in the, uh, by the evening, but I walked to the stage and I stood there and I go, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, we're about to do it. Hmm. And I just remember it was like, you know, eyebrow down, eyebrow up, <laughs> masticate the words as much as you can and get your mouth out as far, people and you know, really, really masticate the words. And I did it, and then the hands, they got me watching the thing about the hands, where it was like, you know, remember that we, it's like wax on, wax off. <laughs> I mean, first of all, is there ever such a thing as too orange when it comes to Donald Trump? <laughs> Lauren Michael seems to think so. I mean, it sounds like rather than any kind of grand plan for how Alec Baldwin would come to embody Donald Trump in like a culturally transformative way, it feels like he just did improv? Like it just kind of came to him? Well, close. He said, I don't really think a lot about what goes on inside him. And I think that speaks to how Donald Trump is such a character that you almost don't need to, uh, what is it called when you embed yourself in a character? Method acting. You don't have to method act Donald Trump. Uh, you can really get him by his gestures, by his face. And I, I think that's what uh, Alec Baldwin was saying. He did watch several hours of his gestures, but his Donald Trump is really about externalizing this rhetorical style, and that's what Baldwin picked up on. And he can flip in and out of this guy as we were speaking. Meanwhile, the whole time we were speaking, his eyebrows were already glued into little points. <laughs> it was very disconcerting. What was that like, watching him go in and out of Trump? Surprising. He really does become Trump. And then again, it's... Is he pursing? Is, is he doing the lip pursing? Oh, he's doing his little, you know, tiny puckered mouth. And How does he get he, them so slumped. moist? <laughs> we'll have to ask Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Mr. Baldwin, how do you get your lips so very moist? <laughs> All right. So Alec Baldwin is a hugely outspoken liberal. He makes no bones about that. And he's kind of taunted Donald Trump on tax returns and like a dozen other issues and says he'll stop mocking Donald Trump and impersonating him if Donald Trump ever releases his taxes, which we know is not going to happen. I guess what I'm getting at is, does Alec Baldwin feel like he's doing playful satire for its own sake or that there's like a deeper civic duty as a liberal to kind of call him out? I asked him exactly this question, Michael, and he says both. The artist credo, arts for art's sake, is very present in Mr. Baldwin's mind. He says, I'm a performer. I'm here to entertain. Uh, I'm here doing a show. I'm a, a performer, an actor that's here doing a show. It's a great part. Uh, and, and, and the thing I think that really makes the experience worthwhile from the performance standpoint is we have an audience. You know, the first debate we did had 22 million hits on YouTube. Yeah. And Lord, Lord kept reminding me. And we've got a big audience for this. This is going over fairly well. Mm. And of course, second behind that was Trump's own response to what we were doing. And we kind of got in a little bit, which I thought was funny. And then the next thing he says is, but I want Donald Trump out as soon as possible. He actually said, I want him to enjoy his life as a developer, be a father and a grandfather, but I want him to leave the White House as soon as humanly possible. Well, I want him gone. I want him out of that job. I, I hope he 
develops real estate till the cows come home and is happy as a father and a grandfather and a husband. I mean, I don't, I don't hate him. I want him to uh, enjoy his life, and I just want him to not be the president of the United States mm. as quickly as possible. Mm. And yet, Alec Baldwin doesn't think of this performance as his activism. A friend actually called him and, or emailed him rather, and said, thank you for humanizing Donald Trump. You Whoa. got him elected. And Alec uh, understands that that is a risk. Did he think he was humanizing? I don't think he thought it as he went along, but he realized that was a risk. I mean, his Trump is kind of dopey kind of sweet. Uh, on the flip side, utterly incompetent, uh, dangerously incompetent. But uh, I think you can see it both ways. What did he think of his friend's email saying to him that you may be doing some kind of a service to or for Trump? He responded that he saw it was possible and that made him want to fight harder as a liberal. I must say that people encouraging me to do it, mm. people saying to me that they thought it was funny and, and helpful and you know it mirrored 9-11 in terms of people having what something there were these devastating circumstances very different circumstances mm. i feel uncomfortable saying this but it's true and people say this to me all day long everywhere i go all day long you great alec thank you president mr president trump they yell on the trump. streets and then when i talk to them in the village maybe people will stop and have a more thoughtful brief exchange i'm like god you have no idea Huh. Very emotional. Huh. Thank you so much for doing this. This is just a nightmare. This is a nightmare we're never going to wake up from. Yeah. You know, they're really emotional. Wow. And I think to myself, my God, I get up here for five minutes yeah. on a Saturday and we give you a little awareness or a little, uh, you know, we're throwing our log on that fire of, you know, I don't want to say keeping him honest, but just shining that light on him all the time. Does he think it's possible to separate his politics from his lampooning or satirizing or whatever you want to call it of Trump? He doesn't want to. And in fact, Trump's election and perhaps this performance has galvanized uh, Alec. He says that uh, he had spent the last couple of years investing in arts causes. He has a foundation. He gives millions to uh, the Philharmonic, several charities. Um, and he works with uh, for indigenous women's rights and a bunch of different causes. Yet he had stopped funding politicians and helping candidates get elected. And he said, uh, that's going to change now. So when SNL ends, the Twitter wars begin between Donald Trump and Alec Baldwin. And it's like this kind of digital gift every week that we get to watch this back and forth. And now Donald Trump has stopped the tweeting. Feels like maybe he's over it. How does Alec Baldwin feel about the fact that the president-elect is so hyper-responsive to his performances. I asked him a similar question, but I asked it about the president-elect's followers, how they have gone on the absolute rabid attack of Alec Baldwin. If you look at the responses to any tweet Alec Baldwin makes, they dredge up painful, painful instances in his life, uh, particularly his uh, nasty divorce from Kim Basinger, his uh, treatment of his daughter, Ireland. They do what Trump would do. <laughs> they go very deep and very hostile. And so I asked Alec, wow. how do you handle this as a human? Um, and he said he finds it funny. And he said the only way to approach it is to laugh. I thought it was funny. I mean, yeah, how could it be otherwise? I thought it was really funny. Hmm. I mean, because he's the same. Meaning the thing to do is ignore it. The thing to do is, is uh, to issue statements the following day about, you know, uh, I guess what you intend to do once you take office and what kind of plan you want to have to um, 
if not help people in general in this country, but help the ones that you think voted for you. But so when he writes that, I, I thought it was funny. I, I never really think about it. I never really think about, uh, you know, his response is just amusing to me, but I never really let it bother me. But he is looking at the tweets. He's monitoring it. The other thing I asked him was, why do you sometimes respond? Right. Why? Why? And actually, the interview in his dressing was wrapping up, and he, I asked that question, and they called him to the stage, and he said, come with me to the stage. I have to answer this. So we walked to the stage, and there's Kate McKinnon passing us, and they did not want me on the set. By the way, this is a closed set, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, so. What are you doing there? <laughs> well, that's another story. But he said to me, Sarah, I go to bed. I stay up a little late. My kid cries, wakes me up in the night. I have watched CNN. I've finished my blogging for the Huffington Post. And sometimes I just can't help myself. And I retweet or I respond. He can't help himself. He's he human. takes the bait. He's human and he takes the bait. Does he see it as a tribute I, to his performance and maybe to his career that the president-elect is directly responding so forcefully? I think he sees it as underscoring what he believes is the president-elect's unfitness for the job. His hypersensitivity. His hypersensitivity, his uh, meanness. Uh, Alec Baldwin has very, very strong words for how he believes this man is incapable and possibly dangerous. And I think the responses underscore that for Mr. Baldwin. I want to play a short clip from your interview with Baldwin when you asked him about lashing out at the media himself, something, of course, Trump does almost every day. Because not that long ago, Alec Baldwin was in the middle of a tabloid scandal for allegedly making some very derogatory comments against gay people and African-American people. Uh, so Baldwin swore off the media, and as I recall, it also swore off New York at the time, and said he'd never give another interview again. But the question I want to ask you is, I was really surprised to hear coming from you, which was really railing against the media and feeling that they were useless and liars. And I, it sounds a lot like Trump. I can understand where that's true, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to deny it, but if I, if, you know, to the extent I say that. But then again, I think a lot of people in public life feel that way. They might not voice that. So that brings me to this comparison between Alec Baldwin and the man he now embodies every Saturday night on television and their similarities. And I think it's worth ticking through them a little bit one by one. They're both from New York. They both have these huge outsized personalities. They're both prone to feuds. It actually deeply pains Alec, the idea that they're comparable. The parallels absolutely do exist, but I think he rightly points out they stop at a point. What he says is, uh, while the things he's been accused of, uh, Alec's been accused of, uh, have not been proven and are, are not on tape, um, and he was never charged with a hate crime or any of that, uh, he says that uh, what Mr. Trump says is incontrovertible. Not only does he say uh, painful things, he runs on them, which I thought was mm -hmm. a very astute uh, analysis. It so deeply pains Alec that actually at 2 a.m. after Saturday Night Live, uh, ran, he emailed me asking if I was going to compare him to Trump. And I said, I think this warrants another conversation. And we talked the next day, and he really spelled it out, uh, what he believes. Um, 
something he said is that uh, while Mr. Trump lives this uh, gilded life, uh, really uh, among the uh, wealthy and elite and, and lives with the trappings and moral sensibility of uh, wealth, uh, the wealthy class. Um, Alec Baldwin says that he has striven to, while he may have made money, to not be a quote-unquote rich person. And I think that's the distinction um, for Alec. So Sarah, we have to talk about the grilled cheese quote mm-hmm. in this interview. And what it actually signifies is that Alec Baldwin has listened to Donald Trump ad nauseum, like hours on end, and he had to craft the right way to like distill all that and yet make it super, super compelling. And his answer is grilled cheese. Let's listen. I don't spend a lot of time, quite th- frankly, thinking about his uh, what's going on inside him. I know that he's somebody who seems to pause, and I could be wrong, but when I see him, I see a guy who seems to pause to dig for the more precise and better language that he wants to use mm. and never finds it. Huh. There's a pause and you're waiting for something. He's like, and I just think that this guy is really a fantastic person. You're like, well, he gets the, the banal over and over again, the same dish. It's a grilled cheese sandwich rhetorically over and over again. What did you make of that? Alec Baldwin's an excellent student of character, even though he says he doesn't care much about what goes on internally in Donald Trump. I think he's watching and I think he's absorbing. And he spoke about Donald Trump not having to ever cultivate himself, being a developer, working in what he called the lunch pail, hard hat kind of crowd. He's never had to extend his vocabulary, maybe even extend his thought processes into a, a deeper medium. And so when he says rhetorical grilled cheese, he means Donald Trump is searching for another word. But another word never comes out. Just the same words, the same word cloud. Uh, and he may not feel he needs it. Like, it's been widely commented on that the Trump vocabulary is limited. Some people call it middle school. Some people call it high school. But it's not aspirational in any way. It doesn't try to be anything other than the kind of vernacular that it is. Well, look, it works for Donald Trump. And now it's working for Alec Baldwin. I want to ask you how you scored this interview. And I guess we should step back even further because... Alec Baldwin and you have been having some level of an ongoing conversation, it seems, for some time. And I I wonder how that started. Sure. For six years, um, before I was a Metro reporter uh, or an investigative reporter, I was a party reporter for The New York Times. I remember that well. I had a column called Nocturnalist. I did 252 parties in 18 months. Wow. And one of the parties uh, was for another event that uh, Mr. Baldwin Alec, I keep switching back and forth. I don't know what to call him. A.B. You're in the uh, honorific and you're in the casual. Our style guide yeah. is confused. <laughs> and um, it was an event for another group he supports uh, for the conservation of uh, wild spaces in the East End. And after uh, speaking to him this, at this event, uh, part of my work with Nocturnal is I never ate dinner at any of the parties because that would be uh, improperly taking a freebie, which we don't do at the New York Times. So I said, Mr. Baldwin, i got to leave the dinner part. I'm going to go get dinner with my friends. He suggested a restaurant. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. So I went four miles down the road. Lo and behold, 20 minutes later, who shows up at the hostess stand? Alec Baldwin. And he walked over our table and he said, "Uh, you said you'd be here. And I said, so I did. (laughs) And he sat down at the table and he said, I'll stay for five minutes. He stayed for an hour. But he, I wrote about it. And I think he was a little bit shocked that I wrote about the whole interaction. But I never said it was off the record, the fact that he followed me all over the East 
Hampton or the Hamptons. And then uh, several months later, after really persisting, I ended up with a much newsier story from Alec Baldwin about whether he was going to run for mayor or not, and uh, which he divulged that he had planned to, but he had changed his mind. So it sort of speaks to news is everywhere if you Mm. keep cultivating these sources. I want to ask you about Alec Baldwin's political aspirations. Do they still exist? Does he still nurse them? I have uh, pestered him about this throughout, I guess, six years, (laughs) starting with the mayoral uh, story. And now I asked him multiple times as we sat in his dressing room at Saturday Night Live and as we wandered all over the corridors with various people calling him for makeup and hair. And he insisted that he is not running because he doesn't think he can win. He says, if I thought I could win, I would run. And I said, for mayor, uh, he didn't say what exactly. He said, for a meaningful office. And I said, has Trump's win made it seem more possible that a person with lots of kind of crazy skeletons in their closet could run? And he said, indeed it has, but I don't know if I would. I want to end by looking forward just a little bit. Is he committed to playing Donald Trump throughout his presidency? And does he ultimately think that's a productive use of his time and kind of like for the democracy, like the right way to treat this presidency. To answer backwards, he thinks it's absolutely the right way to treat this presidency. And he ascribes to Lauren Michaels, the show's creators, sense that uh, whoever is president deserves to be hit as hard as possible to keep shining the light on them, or as he says, throw himself as the log on the fire uh, to keep burning bright criticism and 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 keep them on their toes. Uh, I think that he will continue to play Trump. He even alluded to possibly playing him in other arenas. And yet he's a very busy man. So will he play him every Saturday? I'm not sure. What would other arenas be? I know. Don't you want to know? One man shows? Ice capades? <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. We'll be back next week. I wish you a very happy holiday. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Our show producer is Vanessa Romo. Pedro Rosado runs our studio. Special thanks this week to Andy Mills. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsverk of Wonderly. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking to buy your dream car? Shop the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. Carvana offers hassle-free financing that's completely transparent. All you have to do is answer a few questions, and you could get pre-qualified in just two minutes. Then, see your real terms and actual monthly payments as you scroll through Carvana's huge inventory of cars. The numbers you see are personalized just for you. It's that easy to find the right car for the right price, as it should be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to finance your dream car the convenient way.